This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hello, everybody. Great to have you with us again. I have to say, when we are looking forward to the runoff election in Georgia, one of the most important things to keep in mind is the power of the Senate to confirm or not to confirm somebody like Joe Biden's pick for the head of the Department of Health and Human Services, who happens to be Radical doesn't even really cut it. There's got to be a word more hyperbolic than radical that we can use to describe Javier Becerra, the California attorney general. This guy is over the top when it comes to his radicalism. This is the guy, Joe Biden, who says he wants to unite America, wants to put at the top of HHS because we're still recovering from Kathleen Sebelius. At least I am. And then this guy's going to come in and run Obamacare and, and who knows what else. It's not just a matter of the fact that he is in the back pocket of Planned Parenthood on so many levels. There are all kinds of problems with Javier Becerra. And in fact, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton actually came out on Fox this week and explained why the Senate has got to stop this guy if Biden ends up in the White House. Here's what Senator Cotton said about Javier Becerra. Cut one. I woke up this morning with a message from a friend in California who said that Javier Becerra is so far to the left, he makes Bernie Sanders look like a tea partier. <laughs> Let's just go through the problems with this nomination. So first, he supports Medicare for all. He's going to be responsible for running Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare and many other health care programs. He's going to use the discretion the law gives him to try to take away your health insurance on the job, to give less flexibility, less control to families and to states who are in charge of these health care decisions. Second, he's a true radical on abortion. He supported the lawsuits against nuns. He's gone after pro-life activists in California who expose some truly grisly crimes by Planned Parenthood. And uh, third, look at what's happened in California during this pandemic. He has been on the forefront of locking down that entire state, of preventing schools from reopening and people going to church, of defending the kind of decisions we saw over the weekend where the city of Los Angeles will allow a well-connected film crew to set up a canteen in a parking lot of a restaurant, but won't allow that restaurant to serve people just outside their premises. Javier Becerra will be Joe Biden's nationwide lockdown enforcer. The Senate ought not to confirm him. No, he's a tyrant. And that's being nice. He's a tyrant. And not only that, when he was talking about the issue of health care and what Javier Becerra would bring this country and do to ordinary working Americans when it comes to their health insurance through their employers, something that you also need to hear is a young Javier Becerra laying out his health care principles as a congressman back in 1994. This is something that you have to hear. Let's flash back to 1994 and listen to Javier Becerra on the issue of health care. This is cut two. I do, as I said before, join my colleagues who support the single-payer plan. I do so because I believe that health care is a right, not a privilege, and I believe it is a responsibility, not an option. 
I also believe that health, our health care system must be prudent and cost-effective, and quite honestly, I've seen nothing that does a better job of addressing that concern than the single-payer system. What we ultimately want to have is meaningful health care reform. And for me, meaningful health care reform means that we must have universal coverage, we must have portability, we must have choice of provider, and we must, of course, have cost savings. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Such cost savings will be incurred when we fully socialize government health care. That's what single payer really is. It's a nice way of saying government run health care because the government does such a great job. Big government always does such a great job when it's a monopoly. Right. Right. And meanwhile, as we're looking at the Christmas season, who would you rather have deliver your packages? Who would you trust more to deliver your packages? One of the private companies that do overnight delivery or the U.S. Postal Service? I'm just going to leave it there. I know that the U.S. Postal Service does a fair job, but not that great. And, and so, you know, just kind of extrapolate out what would happen if Javier Becerra was able to get his so-called single payer in place as the head of HHS. And by the way, that's exactly where these radicals want to take the United States. We knew this before we ever had Nancy Pelosi stand up and say you have to pass it to find out what's in it. We knew darn well what was coming. When you have a communist impulse, you better take over the health care system first. That's a tried and true way of moving a country into a socialist mindset. And they've been working on this for quite a long time. So why wouldn't you have Javier Becerra? The joke of it is that Joe Biden is saying he's going to represent all Americans. He's going to bring people together. Yeah, just like Obama, under whom he served for eight years. Did you ever buy that in the first place? How would you know Obama is lying? His lips are moving. I mean, that's pretty much something that you can count on when you look back at the Obama presidency. And all I'm saying is that the Biden presidency, if it comes to pass, and I pray that it does not, but at this juncture, we're, we're playing hypotheticals here. If it does come to pass, it's just going to be Obama's third term. And, and he's going to go even further down the road of socialism and down the road of total control over the United States and, and freedom of choice and, and religious freedom. And this is another point about Javier Becerra. I got to tell you about this because the California Family Council pointed this out. Back in 2017, January 10th in particular, there was a confirmation hearing for Javier Becerra and a little exchange between Assemblyman James Gallagher with Javier Becerra. And they were talking about the issue of religious liberty. Now, this is important because Becerra has also been on the front lines as a leader enforcing the draconian measures against shutdowns in California, including the shutdown of churches. Now, why does this matter? Because back in 2017, Gallagher had asked Becerra what he thought about that anti-free speech California law called AB 775, which was struck down by the Supreme Court. Now, this was the one that forced pro-life or crisis pregnancy centers to promote abortion. We covered that on the show at the time. Do you remember that? California said, if you run a crisis pregnancy center, you also have to tell those girls who come in where they can get an abortion. This isn't even reasonable by any measure, uh, by any standard you could ever come up with as a thinking human being. There's absolutely nothing in it that makes any sense other than these people are tyrants. And even after this all went down, here was Javier Becerra holding to his guns. Nope, we're going to make these people go against their religious beliefs, violate the First Amendment and force these pro-lifers to tell girls where they can get abortions when their whole reason for being is to protect these babies from being killed through an abortion procedure. 
Listen to what Becerra said when Assemblyman James Gallagher said that religious liberty is important and asked him this question. Don't we need to be cognizant of trampling on people's religious liberties? This is what Javier Becerra had to say just about three and a half years ago. Cut three. No amendment is without some limitation. You can't yell fire in a um, in a movie uh, theater. Uh, on religious uh, protections, the protection for religion is for the individual. And so I think it's important to distinguish between protections that you're uh, affording to the individual to exercise his or her religion freely versus protections you're giving to some institution or entity who's essentially bootstrapping the First Amendment protections on behalf of somebody else. And so there I would, again, we'll drink a few beers and we'll sort of peel through this. And and I think what you'll find is at the end of the day, what we want to do is make sure that people have the chance to exercise their freedoms as much as possible without intrusion in ways that harms people unnecessarily. This is the guy you want as the head of the HHS who doesn't believe that religious liberty extends to churches? Because if he says religious liberty is confined to the individual merely, this guy doesn't understand the First Amendment. This guy's a law enforcement official. This is nuts. I don't know what to say about this. And in fact, the Assemblyman Gallagher, who I mentioned earlier, said the freedom of religion in the First Amendment applies just as much to the mosque as it does to the Muslim. And it applies just as much to the church as it does to the Christian. It applies just as much to religious nonprofits and universities and places of education. And their religious rights need to be protected just as much. He's absolutely right, which is why he voted against Becerra's confirmation as attorney general. We don't want to unleash this nut on the United States of America, the same guy who prosecuted David Daleiden and is now being sued by David Daleiden for violating his civil rights. Not a good choice. And the Senate needs to be in the hands of people who will reject this guy if Biden gets into the White House. There is a lot to come this hour. Don't go away. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free heartbeats for moms in crisis in the USA. When a mother chooses life, preborn centers are there to help with the baby's needs, counseling, and so much more, free of charge. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. 
The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support Preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Sending your child off to school is not like it used to be. As we know today, you might learn that a boy who thinks he's a girl is allowed into the girl's restroom or that your school clinic distributed contraceptives to your child and never told you about it. Or maybe you found out that your child's teacher is ranting against the United States and its founding documents as inherently evil. Now, you might be breathing a sigh of relief at not having to face those things directly if your child is doing online school right now. But even parents who've peaked at some of those online classroom times have discovered that some teachers are engaging in some very shocking instructions. So what is a parent to do? There is a new parent guide out now to help you navigate some of these critical issues. It is called Back to School for Parents, and it's billed as a busy parent's guide to what's happening in your children's classrooms and practical steps you can take to protect them. So we're going to find out more now from Jeff Johnston, culture and policy analyst at Focus on the Family, which put the guide together along with the Family Policy Alliance. And Jeff, it's great to have you here. How are you? Hi, Janet. I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the broadcast. Sure thing. Well, thank you for doing this guide and for being with us. I know a lot of kids are in school right now. There are others at home. Why is this guide so important, do you believe? Because you have a lot of access to parents and some of these stories I know have been out there about what parents are seeing, even in these Zoom classes. What are some of the concerns driving this guide? Well, there's a number of concerns. In fact, there's so many we had to include nine different sections in the resource. Um, Let's just start in the classroom. There are a half a dozen states like California, Colorado, New Jersey, that have mandated the teaching of LGBT curriculum. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that um, if you're teaching social studies, you have to have curriculum that includes the contributions of LGBT individuals. And that's from kindergarten through 12th grade. So you have kindergartners being exposed to these difficult concepts. You mentioned uh, what's going on in locker rooms and bathrooms and girls sports, where boys who think they're girls are being allowed into those school locker rooms and onto girls sports teams. And they're basically um, invading the privacy and the safety of those girls in those places. So those are just a couple examples. Yeah, totally right. And and this is, I mean, it's horrible. I know California, I think, was the initial state that mandated the LGBT, you know, kind of heroes curriculum. You've got to teach the kids about the LGBT heroes, even if you have to stretch to do it. But I mean, what what sort of harm is this doing to children? Because certainly history is not always what we want it to be. But on the other hand, this is just pure indoctrination. And a lot of parents say, well, do I have any rights when it comes to what my child is hearing? Well, if it's um, comprehensive sexual education, parents do have more rights to opt out their children, and they need to find out what curriculum their schools are using. Um, There's textbooks and curriculum out there that on comprehensive sex ed that are produced by groups like Planned Parenthood 
and LGBT activist groups. And it creates confusion in children, and it also sexualizes them at a really early age and teaches them concepts like, you know, you you might have two different sexes inside of you or um, more than that. You might not be male or female, or you might change into the opposite sex. And that's really confusing for a you know, kindergartner or first grader to hear about. As far as teaching uh, the contributions of LGBT individuals in the classroom, parents have fewer options there um, because that's a state law and they're not allowed to opt their children out of those classrooms unless they pull them out and homeschool or put them into a private school. So you have second graders learning about somebody who ran for mayor in San Francisco who was a cross-dresser and ran an LGBT nightclub. And that's totally inappropriate for young children to be learning about. But that's what's coming down the pipeline. And a lot of states are following California's lead. Um, Here in Colorado, we passed a similar law. New Jersey, other states are mandating this as well. And once the textbooks are produced for California, other school districts can opt into those as well. So we try to give parents in this guide, we try to explain the problem and then also give them some options, what they can do about talking to their um, school's te- their child's teacher, what they can do about talking to the principal at the school, and then moving on up there to the school district and even to the state level. We give them resources and information about how to address the issue at different levels. Right, which is so important. What about this issue of these clinics inside some of these schools, uh, you know, distributing contraception, you know, to to teenage girls, for example, and the parents may not know about it. I know that's been kind of an issue in California where they want to just push the line further and further and further and help girls get abortions and the parents shouldn't know about it and these sorts of things. What sorts of rights do parents have in that regard? Well, parents will generally sign some sort of waiver or agreement with the school in those cases that they're allowing their child to use the clinic or they're allowing their child to go to the counseling offices. And you're right. A lot of times they'll be steered towards contraceptives or toward abortion if they're pregnant or even we've had cases where schools have helped teenagers so-called transition into the opposite sex. Yes. So they've helped, helped the teenager become emancipated, and then they help them get opposite sex hormones and eventually access to surgery. There was a case in Minnesota where a mom's fighting that, and there's other cases around the country. Yeah. So if you've signed a waiver or an agreement to use the clinics, parents definitely need to look at what they've signed. And they might want to stipulate it on there. And we give some examples of this. Um, I only want my child to be treated in case of a real emergency or for minor issues, you know, like where they give them aspirin or ibuprofen, something like that. But parents need to know what they've signed and what they've agreed to. And then they also need to know a little bit about who's running the clinic. Very often um, groups like Planned Parenthood will set up clinics in high schools and they'll help facilitate abortions for minors. And in in very many cases, that's without the parent's knowledge or even or their consent. Um, And sometimes that's the state law that minors can get access to abortions, contraceptives, um, 
bodily altering chemicals like opposite sex hormones without the parent even being informed. So you need to know what's the, what the law is in your state and um, what kind of waiver you've signed, what you've agreed to in sending your child to that clinic. Now we give some examples of things you can do about that in this resource. Well, that's good advice. What about the problem of liberal bias? Because I hear about this one a lot, where you have now some of these younger teachers who have been you know, drinking the BLM Kool-Aid and some of these other radical groups, and they get into the classroom and they're just indoctrinating the kids. America is evil and you know the evil racists who founded the country. And, and just you know, basically outlining progressive ideology to kids who may come from conservative Christian homes, and that is not the will of the parents for the kids to hear this propaganda. What sorts of rights do parents have to push back against that? And, and what have you heard about success, if any, uh, with parents pushing back? Well, parents do have the right to look at all the curriculum and all the textbooks that are being used in their public school. They have the right to review those, and they should definitely do that, because there are some textbooks out there that, as you said, they're teaching that America is totally evil and there's no redeeming value in our country and the founding fathers and the principles that we're organizing this country. There's, um, you can also look for things, like if your school is teaching the 1619 Project. Yeah. And so far, it's already been taught in over 4,500 schools across the U.S. Wow. Um, does your uh, history or social studies teachers use material by Howard Zinn, who was a, a leftist who wrote a, a People's History of the United States? Right. Now, I, I read that back in the 80s at San Diego State University, but now um, groups have set up that curriculum to bring it down to the elementary school, middle school, and high school level. Wow. And all it teaches is about all the evils done by our forefathers and not very much about the good. So you, you can find out if your classroom is using these. And then, you know, sometimes the options are limited. You can't pull your kid out of history. But you can begin to challenge these things in the school and you can challenge them at the district level. And so we give different ideas for parents to, to work with on those issues, where it's the actual, actual curriculum that is um, offensive and it indoctrinates children into beliefs that, as you said, are very opposed to what the parents believe. Yep, absolutely. Before we run out of time, Jeff, can you let parents know where they can find the guide so they can read through it and get all your great tips? Sure. Probably the... Um, simplest way i mean you can you can do a search for focus on the family and back to school for parents but if you go to the dailycitizen.org again that's the dailycitizen.org um that's our news outlet and we have an article and a landing page at that site and you just search for back to school for parents wonderful and you can find the resource it's free it's a free downloadable PDF. I, I do want to give a warning. Um, even when I was reading through it after, after writing a lot of this, just to review this, it's kind of gloomy and scary to think about all these different areas. So I want to, you know, tell parents you might just want to read a section at a time <laughs> and or, you know, as a specific issue arises, or you might want to look through the whole thing and find out what should I even be looking for in the school. But it is really daunting uh, to see what's happening in our public schools these days. 
Well, it certainly is, but this is why I think the guide is so necessary, and I'm sure parents will really appreciate it as a resource for knowing what's going on. I think that's half the problem sometimes is we are so busy and and not doing that kind of deep research that you guys have done, and I think this is a tremendous resource for people to get a hold of. I'll repeat it. It's thedailycitizen.org, and just search for the Back to School for Parents Guide, just a wonderful resource from Focus on the Family. Jeff Johnston joining us. Jeff, great job on that. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Janet. You bet. Take care. We'll be back right after this. Thanks. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. The Lord Jesus told us in Matthew 6 not to store up our treasures on earth, but to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what does this mean for us when we examine how we handle our finances and issues like debt and giving and saving? We know money is necessary, but we're also told in scripture not to be lovers of money, even as we remember that everything that we have belongs to God and we have to be good stewards. We're going to talk about it all today with Nelson Searcy. He is the founding and lead pastor of the Journey Church and also founder of churchleaderinsights.com and the Renegade Pastors Network. Today, we'll be discussing with him how to get out of debt and find financial freedom. His book is called The Generosity Secret. Nelson, great to have you with us. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Janet, and uh, Merry Christmas to you. Great to be with you and all of your listeners. Excited about being with you today. Well, we're excited you're here. Merry Christmas to you as well. You know what it's like to have a debt problem, don't you? I, I mean, this <laughs> this is a com- common thing, I know, but you just lay it out there at the beginning. You know what it's like to be in debt. Uh, somehow I managed for most of my life to avoid debt, but then, like a lot of people, got married, made some dumb decisions, took on some debt. Next thing I know, twenty-two grand in debt. Didn't take long to get there in New York City, but uh, I managed somehow to do it. Yeah. Well, how did you get there? Did you have any, was it kind of accidental that you fell into debt and things just got kind of overwhelming or was it that you just didn't care? What was your mindset as you were getting into that kind of deep debt? Yeah, well, it was a strange combination of apathy and ignorance. And uh, so I don't know and I don't care is the (laughs) issue as it might be. But, you know, I became apathetic about uh, uh, dealing with my money. You just sort of put it off over to the side and uh, you're buying things that uh, on credit or you're, you're taking advantage of those offers they make. And they even do this online now, but back then it was at the store. You know, they would offer you 20% if you would open up a credit card. And just little by little, it grew. And unfortunately, what was happening at the same time, Janet, is that was also a time where I wasn't a fully honoring God with my finances. <laughs> and that sounds strange to say as a pastor, but you know, the first part of my ministry, I did really well. I was a very consistent tither, a very consistent giver. But then I, I kind of began to back away from that. I became more of a tipper, if you will, than a, a tither. And I don't think that's a coincidence that my debt went up as my giving 
uh, generosity went down. Interesting. Well, you also talk about the problem of bad decisions and the fact that most of our money problems do come down to bad decisions. What are some of those warning signs for listeners? Because I know you list some of them in the book. If you're doing certain things, you might be having a problem with money. Well, one of the things is, do you, do you know if you're in debt or not? Uh, if I ask you, and if I could go around to all of the listeners and just say, how much debt are you in? Uh, some, of course, would be able to say, I'm in zero debt, and praise the Lord for that. I could say that today. I've been debt-free now uh, for almost 20 years. But uh, that's one sign if you just can't answer the question. And it's actually gotten harder to determine the answer to that question as we moved from having to pay physical bills with physical checks to now having things automatically deducted from our bank account, or as I do and probably you do as well, we pay most of our bills online. And so we don't always keep up with uh, how much debt we're really in. So that's a warning sign. But then the other is, uh, are you able to save? Uh, How much money do you have in savings? And as terrible as this pandemic uh, has been, uh, it has taught and reminded many of us that the basics matter, like uh, being able to save and being able to be prepared for what might happen if we're laid off for a month or two from our job. That's a big one. Do you have opportunities that are put in front of you? I would even say kingdom opportunities, like to give to special things at your church or give to ministries that you want to support or go on a mission trip. And I know uh, that hasn't been one we've been able to do this year, but hopefully it'll open back up very soon. But you say, I can't do it because I just don't have the finances to do it. These are things that all uh, tell us that you know something's not quite right in our finances, and it really comes down to, can I do the things that God wants me to do, or am I limited in doing what God wants me to do because I'm not in the financial health or shape that I need to be in? Yeah. How much of this would you say with most people comes down to just not earning enough versus wanting to have things they truly can't afford? Well, my favorite line on this, and uh, this is not original with me, I actually tried to trace Uh, this back as I did the history. And one of the things about writing a book on finances, and I'm kind of a history buff, has been to chase down some of these uh, ideas that uh, are very common. But who said it first? Where did this originate? And I really haven't been able to find the original uh, uh, person who said this, but I, I love the phrase that financial freedom has nothing to do with how much you make. It has everything to do with how much you spend. And so what happens is oftentimes we say, well, if I just made a little bit more, I would be financially free. If I just made more, I would be able to uh, be more generous. If I just made more, I would be able to do more of the stuff that God's called me to do. But what happens is as our incomes go up, so, do, so does our uh, commitment to materialism, so do our greeds. Uh, go up. And so we end up just spending more as we end up making more. So it's really not an income issue. It's really uh, an obedience issue. Yeah, that's a good point. So when we're looking at God's Word and we're trying to get a handle on this issue of money, as I mentioned at the outset, we understand some of the things the Lord said about money and money, you know, God, you can't serve God and mammon. And we, we, we know these verses, but what do you think are the most important principles to take away from the Bible concerning how we view our possessions? and our money. Well, one thing that you you mentioned there that I think is so important is uh, it really is amazing how often the Bible talks about money. 
And uh, I, I think it, it, you know, there, there's different counts depending on translations and whether it's money or mammon in the King James Version or different things. But you know, Jesus taught more about money than he did any other subject except for the kingdom of God. And I think one of the reasons the Bible talks about money so much is because God knew that we were going to struggle with it. And so God said, I know that money is going to be a struggle with you, so I'm going to give you plenty of advice and if you just look at the book of Proverbs alone, it seems like every third verse is, is about money. So when you begin to look at that in a, in a big picture way and then categorize it down, uh, I think it really comes down to one uh, word, and that is that we are managers of our money. And that what God is trying to teach us throughout Scripture is how to manage our money, which we will soon learn is really not our money, it's actually the Lord's money. Right. And uh, it's a startling fact when I tell people that you don't own anything. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the old saying about uh, the hearse and the U-Haul trailer and <laughs> things like that, you can't take it with you when you go. So what happens is God gives us money in this life as a tool to be used for His purposes and as a way for us to invest in eternity. And so we really are struggling all of our life to become good managers of what God has uh, entrusted to us. Right. That's a really important thing for people to understand. So when you're talking about the generosity secret, how does that fit into this picture of managing your money biblically? Okay. Th- this is just you and I talking, right? We're, we're, I want to tell you a secret. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the generosity secret, but you can't tell anybody else. You have to keep this to yourself. So this will just be between me and you, Janet. But the generosity secret is that generosity is the secret. (laughs) (laughs) Profound. (laughs) Don't tell anybody that. I I can't have that getting out because, you know, I've got a 270-page book uh, about this. So we can't have have this information just get out there, you know, on on your radio show to your thousands and tens of thousands of listeners. But that really is what it comes down to. And I think that's been the missing piece that, uh, and, and I think that's what we sort of missed, even in uh, Christian books about money. We've, we've started at step two, which is the practicalities, which is the implementation of things like how to get out of debt or how to build an eternity portfolio or whatever it might be. But we've missed that initial piece uh, when it comes to generosity. And so I really think that's what God is trying to teach us. And, and here's why I think that's so important. The reason we get into trouble financially, the reason we get upside down on our mortgages, the reason we go into debt is because of, to say it strongly, a sin issue. Yeah. We're disobeying God. But then that's so strong, you know, you want to put a name on it. So what's the name of the sin? Well, then it gets even worse because the name of the sin is idolatry. Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to run to a break. We'll come back with Nelson Searcy, The Generosity Secret is his book. Stay with us. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today.
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. If you could provide God's Word to a Bible-less believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible. Bible, but what happens there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, 800 Yes Word, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Nelson Searcy. His book is called The Generosity Secret, How to Get Out of Debt and Find Financial Freedom. And I am still really reeling from the reveal here that you gave to me just between you and me, Nelson, (laughs) that the secret is generosity. And you mentioned the problem of idolatry as well. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so you know, as you build this case that we get into debt because of sin, we disobey God's word, and then the sin, the name of the sin is idolatry, and that's such a strong word, it's hard to get our hands around it. So what I've done, in hopefully a theologically appropriate way, is I've sort of softened that word, and instead of calling it idolatry, let's call it materialism. So the big issue when it comes to our finances is that we live in a material world and that we're all committed to materialism, and that's why we spend more than we make uh, to impress people we don't like, as the old (laughs) saying goes, but it's materialism. So then you ask yourself, okay, if that's the sin, how do I break that sin? How do I deal with that sin? Or to use a word that we've become very familiar with this year, what's the vaccine for that sin? Well, there's only one vaccine, and it's generosity. So the antidote to materialism is generosity, because materialism is living with a closed fist of saying, this is mine, 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 
Whereas generosity is open-handed living where we say to God, it's really yours, yours, yours. That's really important. I mean, this is something that we think about all the time. What is in your heart? Uh, You can have a dollar, you can have a million dollars, but if you are holding on to your million dollars with all your might and never giving any of it away, uh, you can be in way worse shape than the person who only has a dollar and gives away the dollar. And there are people like that. I mean, I see that all the time, people who really don't have money, but they're so generous and they never seem to be in want either. That's the funny thing. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, when I was writing this book, I, I tried to run it by people that I know who are of high wealth. And, uh, you know, pastoring a church that has locations in New York City and in Boca Raton, Florida, you know, we have people in our church that are in high wealth. So I said, okay, you know, you, I didn't really tell them I picked them out for that reason, but I said, you know, take a look at this and tell me, does that ring true? But then at the same time, we have people in our church who are in tremendous need and they've been laid off and they've been dealing with great difficulty this year. And I said, tell me what you think about this. And that again goes to that idea that uh, just like financial freedom has nothing to do with how much you make. Generosity has nothing to do with how much you make, because the widow in the scripture who gave the might, yes. she was lifted up as saying, this is someone who we would say gave a little, but gave generously. But then at the same time, we see Mary who used the expensive bottle of perfume, and that was an extravagant gift. And she too was lifted up because their hearts were right. So it's not the amount that counts. It's the the heart and the commitment to God that counts. Yeah, that's so great. And and you're talking about the widow's might and Mark 12 is one of the passages that that talks about that. And Jesus said, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. You know, and and that's how the Lord looks at it. So when you're talking about generosity, obviously there are a lot of things you can do with your money. You can, uh, you definitely need to support your church, support missions, these Christian things, uh, you know, not only your local church, but also important endeavors, ministry, mission, work across the globe, things like that. All of those things as Christians are necessary for us to support. But what about the rest of what you do with your money? Because if you're in debt and you're trying to get out of debt, it can take years to get out of debt if you're very, very deeply into it. How do you advise somebody to really turn the corner on financial management such that generosity becomes more of a way of life? Yeah, and that's uh, that's really what this book is all about. It, I really want it to be a, a very practical book. And these are principles that I've taught to young professionals and uh, uh, adults in my church over and over and over. And, you know, we've literally had thousands of testimonies of people who have used these principles. So I, I know that they work, and, and a lot of times they are just very basic kind of ideas. So the first step is to take an act of generosity. Do something that's generous. Uh, give for the first time to your church. Give $5 more, or I use the example in the book of giving $50 more. And that may be a significant gift for a lot of people, but that, that's counterintuitive because you say, shouldn't that go to my debt? Well, the first thing you want to do is you want to give generously. And then the second thing you want to do is figure out how much debt that you're actually in and develop a repayment plan. And for me, when I was in that $22,000 worth of debt, uh, I began to look at that, and I used uh, these common approaches to pay off the small debt first and then roll that into the bigger debt and other strategies that have been written about uh, by authors who are better than me. And, and I used that strategy, and I said, it's going to take me seven years. <laughs> but I'm like, well, you know, if I don't start now, it's just going to be longer later. And so I had to break the materialism 
issue by giving generously, restoring, in my case, giving the tithe to, to my church and then giving my offering as God allowed to other ministries and things I wanted to support. And what that gave me is that, God, that gave me now God's blessing on my repayment plan. So I can put together my own repayment plan, but if I give generously first in a way that I don't fully understand, I get God's blessing on that repayment plan. Yeah. And then I begin to implement that. And then in an amazing way, God adds his power to it. And what I've seen over and over is a seven-year repayment plan, at least in my case, turned into a four-year repayment plan because God blessed it. And that's why I talk about in the book about uh, many times as you put together a repayment plan, you can see it done in half the time. Because when you start with generosity, you get God's power on your plan, and then his power accelerates your plan. And so it may be even easier than you thought it would be. Interesting. And that's really the crux of it is you have to make that decision initially to get out of debt and to go in the right direction. And another thing, and this kind of brings up, uh, you know, an irritation that I have, for example, with the government where they're constantly trillions of dollars in debt. And I always turn around and say, why don't they stop spending so much? But this is a problem with individuals, obviously, as well. If you want to go and buy your five dollar Starbucks every single morning and you don't really have the financial situation to afford that, get in the habit of making your coffee at home. You know, buy a big thing of Folgers. It'll last you a long time. Little decisions like that can really pay off in the long run, can't they? Oh, it's incredible what those kind of things will do. And uh, it's incredible how our culture, and I would even say, you know, our broken culture, because that's why we get into debt. We follow the, we follow the world's way. We follow quite frankly, Satan's way. And Satan has convinced us that what 20 years ago cost a quarter and came with free refills at the local diner uh, there where you are in, in, in Dallas or you know where I was living at the time in New York, now we pay for one cup full for $5. Oh, yeah. And uh, we say, well, it's only $5, but you multiply that by, say, 20 business days, then you're talking about $100. You multiply that over 12 months. Now you're talking about $1,200. Well, <sighs> that would probably probably be enough to pay off your smallest debt. Right. And then you do things like uh, take your own sandwich or take your own soup uh, to work, and you're beginning to multiply it. Or oh, now we've got these amazing tools uh, like eBay or, or other online places where we can sell our stuff. Yes. And we can sell this stuff that got us into trouble. And yeah, we're not going to get back what we originally paid for it because it's now used. But we can use that to pay down uh, our debt. And so I just talk about all these little factors uh, in the book and things like you mentioned uh, there as well that I'm going to put in the next version of the book because <laughs> you gave me some good ideas. <laughs> then all of that begins to come together and we get God's power on top of that. And the next thing you know, it's not easy, but it's not going to be as overwhelming as we think it's going to be. Well, right. And I also like that you encourage people to set goals for giving and goals for saving and goals for investing. That's important, too, to look at the entire picture and decide what goes where. It's when you get sloppy about what you're doing with your money that you can make these big mistakes, it would seem. Yeah. And what I like about goals is uh, it, it comes across a little better than budget you know, yes. sometimes the B word's a little scary to each other, and that's really what, you know, our, our government's problem is. They don't live on a budget, and, and we don't either. <laughs> right. uh, and thankfully, some states require that they stay within the budget. But budget has become a little bit of a negative word. So I talk about goals for giving. And so there again, you start with generosity. 
And uh, there, there are listeners who, uh, if they really work this plan in five, ten years from now, they could give more than they ever could possibly uh, imagine. I'm not going to give my number, but I set a goal for giving, and it, it was so far beyond anything I thought I could give on a pastor's salary. But yet God began to work that out, and things begin to happen, and that's another book for uh, another day. But you have a, a goal for giving, so that's generosity. Yeah. Then you have a goal for saving, and it's okay to save. And then you have a goal for investing. Good. And the reason you've got to have these goals is if you don't tell your money where it should go, you're always going to wonder where it went. Wow, that is so good, Nelson. Well, Nelson Searcy has been with us. Again, the name of his book, The Generosity Secret, How to Get Out of Debt and Find Financial Freedom. Thank you so much, Nelson, for being with us. Oh, my privilege. And uh, thank you, Janet, and God bless you. God bless you, too. Thanks again for being here. And thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. Always a pleasure to have you along on the broadcast, and we'll see you next time. Take care. 